You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome, Archeonauts, to Modern Myth, the show dedicated to uncovering the reasons behind why we think what we think, and to explore how narratives are created in our modern world. I shall be your guide, the Anarchaeologist, and I will be asking my guests, myself, and you, my listener, how we came upon the way we think about the world. Brexit. It's a word we hear all too often. No doubt we are all fatigued by it. But at the cusp of its realisation, perhaps we should look at how we got here. What helped create the narrative and what information was drawn upon in order to make it seem that leaving the EU was the decision to vote for, at least for the majority of people. Britain, strong, sovereign nation, leader of the world. Even with its empire gone, Britain reigns. Perhaps a little in the shadow of America, and in the shadow of the manufacturing capabilities of China. Nonetheless, seen by many as a world power. So why, if so strong, would Britain make itself a servant to a larger authority? Why would the UK bow down to continental dominance, having won two wars, instigated in the minds of many by European countries? It was first in 1961 that the UK applied to the EU. This was to be one of the many applications it made over the next eight years, with two attempts vetoed by the French. Charles de Gaulle, the French president at the time, saw Britain's economy as a stumbling block to their entry. The way in which industry operated in Britain, in his mind, was not compatible with Europe. In 1969, Britain was allowed to join the EU. But still a controversial decision 
that too had a referendum attached to it. This time, the voters decided to accept Europe, with 67% voting yes to joining. Fast forward to the present day. It was the Eurosceptic party, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, that's always pushed to leave Europe. Their effectiveness in pushing their policy is a lesson to those of us who believe that our political views are too niche to catch on. In fact, publicity can grow an idea from a small party to the national platform of the ruling party. February 2016 Prime Minister David Cameron announces the Brexit vote and sets in motion the wheels of change. And on 23rd of June of that year, we all voted. What made us vote the way we did? Was it really the bus with the £350 million a week on the side? Was it because of the fear of an unstoppable immigration? Did we really know what would happen after Brexit? In his article, Brexit Hypothesis and Prehistory, Kenny Brophy, lecturer at the University of Glasgow, points out the information archaeologists create is often used in the ways the researchers could never have imagined. I think that the first time that I became a aware of this was when I was watching and reviewing the um, Neil Oliver's um, ancient uh, Britain's Ancient Capital program where he was focusing on Orkney's Neolithic and how special it was and I was following the kind of live reaction on Twitter to the program and it became quite evident that there was there was um, viewers that were putting a political slant on the program that I hadn't really anticipated because they thought that the fact that the program was not mentioning Scotland but continually referred to Britain uh, and the fact that connections were being made with, with Stonehenge, they felt as if this was part of a, a political narrative about the programme that was being made by BBC Scotland, presented by a, a unionist presenter and to me that wasn't what the programme was about at all, that wasn't actually the main problem with that programme but it, it's made me realise that actually the way that we present our archaeological theories and results um, are open to misinterpretation and that we maybe need to be more aware of that when we're um, presenting and trying to publicise what we've been doing. I could I could see why people had that perspective because when I, in hindsight when I looked back at the programme um, it was it was clear that the, the word Scotland wasn't ever used at all. They didn't actually spend any time looking at the the Scottish Neolithic or any other aspect of the Scottish Neolithic and within a broader tradition of how the Neolithic has been studied in, in Britain which has generally had a, an, an inordinate focus on Wessex and Orkney as being these kind of core areas with all the good stuff, the centres of innovation, then it, that narrative um, was something that I can understand why it was read into the programme and I think it was obviously exacerbated by the fact that Neil Oliver has got a reputation within the, the kind of the independence communities, both for and against. His political opinions are well known. And of course, we know that archaeology is an inherently political subject and that it's difficult to remove our own political biases. But for me, I didn't I didn't get that that feeling that the programme was actually trying to make any kind of fundamental 
point that the Neolithic was when it, the, the, sorry the Orkney had always been part of Britain and therefore Scotland had always been part of Britain and therefore there was a kind of underlying subtle subliminal message that Neil Oliver was dropping in there but then a lot of these aspects of the theory were so I thought were so weakly argued that it, it left it open to that kind of interpretation as you said Orkney is like one of the places that has such a focus in the Neolithic it's as you said where the good stuff is I mean but saying it's a capital i mean what, what i mean you can't really say it's britain can you i mean what, what's the thinking behind that there's no doubt that that was i guess what i would term as a sort of clickbait headline that was a it was quite a catchy turn of phrase and i guess that they were trying to make the point that there was something that was uh, politically quite important about Orkney at that time and that it was a centre of innovation and I guess also a, a place of leadership for how the later Neolithic was shaped in, in Britain. But but as you say, it's, a, it's an nonsensical concept because there was no such thing as Britain. Uh, the, there were no such things as capitals in the British Neolithic because that suggests a, a political coherence and a level of organisation that didn't exist. And so the, they were kind of applying a, a, a very modern loaded concept onto the Neolithic when it was completely inappropriate. And I think that that um, was, was just exacerbated by the fact that, that this, is, this is, in a sense, how the British Neolithic's always been. It's always been um, stuck between these two poles uh, in the south and in the far north, and everything in between is a bit of a sort of a blank um, space that has never really adequately developed and is a secondary development to these primary centres of excellence. And so it, it kind of reinforced that, and the, and the, the, the idea of a capital uh, was just like, that was just the kind of the, that was the kind of final, the final thing that, that really, that really kind of annoyed me. And, and actually when, as soon as I saw the cap, the, the, the title for the programme, on the BBC website, I must admit, I did, I did fear that that was the direction it would go, and that's what that's what proved to be the case. What would you say in terms of how people have presented arguments about Brexit? Is there any examples that you would deem the worst examples of this kind of trying to fit in a political narrative, or viewed as fitting in a political narrative? I mean, I think that one uh, one thing that really um, struck me and, and moved me further in the direction of thinking about Brexit was the um, BBC Four programme Invasion with uh, with Sam Willis and that which was broadcast a few months after the Orkney programme and that was one that I felt was deeply problematic because it was presenting a narrative that was clearly in a, a Brexit context and it was clearly had a, it clearly did have political motivations um, um, but but somehow there was a this this was only ever implicit in the program, uh, and and that's that's where it's problematic because when you start to present evidence about prehistory and you start to situate it within contemporary political debates, even if you're not you know you're not coming out and just saying you know well you know look at all these changes in prehistory that this is tells us this is tells us something about immigration it tells us something about identity or nationalism. If you just kind of leave that as an undercurrent and then let people read into that what they want, then it's, it becomes really problematic. And that program was was became a bit of a political football. And again, it was being reviewed by people who are watching it, much more so than the Neil Lothic Orkney program. Uh, and it was being latched onto by both people who were um, wanting to see the positivity of, of a positive contribution of immigrants to the history of the British Isles and then it was also latched on to by people who felt this was politically correct BBC propaganda and because 
the program was was couched in such a it's such a clearly um, kind of Brexit focused way. It led all of those all of those kind of readings were were possible by viewers uh, and newspaper reviewers and all that kind of thing. And and actually, I would I'm guessing that the, one of the reasons why that that program was made was because. It had that again, that clickbaity feel to it. That it was, it was kind of over the zeitgeist. It was something that people were talking about immigration and talking about the and uh, the contribution of immigrants to um, British culture, and therefore it seemed like a kind of a natural fit. And I, I did actually um, speak to the producer of that program uh, after it was broadcast, and she was downplayed that um, element of the the rationale behind that program. But I think that um, as soon as you start to play about with these ideas then you open up what you're doing to all sorts of, of misreadings and in fact it would have been better if they'd explicitly said up front that um, this is not something that is pro or anti-Brexit or pro or anti-immigration this is some this is a narrative about the past um, and in fact what happened 6,000 years ago 8,000 years ago in Britain has not has no relevance to our current political situation it's difficult to imagine that things where things are political where they're not kind of influenced by the politics you know what i mean like perhaps you know the denial was maybe not 100 percent sincere um but on the other hand you know when we are so involved in the day-to-day -day politics and the political systems often things seem like they have to be a certain way uh, so there's no way to think outside the current paradigm and it's interesting the question would be what would a show like this be like without brexit you know what would what would we see in shows beyond brexit surely to some extent um politics always in the climate the social climate that we're in always influences what's going on i mean i think but i i, I want to take it back to you were saying about the people reviewing this um people who watch it um obviously our whole media landscape has changed you know we've gone from basic just consuming media as a passive act to now not just consuming media but passing judgment on it which ironically is what we're doing right now as well uh, that's all built into the consumption you know it's it's almost like brands now expect you to have an opinion and to make that opinion known and to dissect and talk uh, because the attention is what they want. So when you were doing, when you were looking into research about this article that you did, um, what were you, what were you looking at, and how were you kind of looking through that data from people who are reviewing stuff? Um, my my approach was not entirely um, methodical, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not, I've not got the capacity of. Uh, people like uh, Chiara Bonacci and Lorna Richardson to um, actually deep mine huge data sets from social media or, or actually kind of go through huge discussion fora and draw things out. So it was much more piecemeal and anecdotal in the sense that when I was looking at stories like the Cheddar Man story or other Brexit parallels related to the 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 kind of the renewed emphasis on the, um, the Beaker invasion at the start of the Bronze Age, I was very much just looking for immediate responses, um, just following um, a few hashtags and keywords on Twitter, and just trying to you know dip my toe into the water and see what kind of reactions these programs are getting. So, I think that there's a really fundamentally 
important um, need for archaeologists to see um, the digital environment as a as a place where they have to undertake field work and they have to actually put our um, our kind of skills of um, of synthesis of data collection of um, trying to understand the lie of the land to kind of in a metaphorical sense to to look at um, other playgrounds other than just the kind of the usual traditional place where you find archaeologists and so i think that my my approach was very much um just looking at the kind of some headlines and looking at some trends that seemed evident to me but it wasn't underpinned by a huge amount of um of data which is why you know the paper is not going to be a, a four-star ref contribution because it's not you know it's not got something that's underpinned by a million um, pieces of information that I looked at um, but there's, there's, there's archaeologists out there who are doing that kind of stuff and there's people who are doing that kind of stuff in other disciplines as well in the social sciences and I think that it's something we need to do a lot more of and it needs to be viewed as being part of the, the modern archaeological toolkit Now in the paper you mentioned that the Roman Empire seems to come up a lot when people are discussing um, Brexit <laughs> why? Hi. Why has the Roman Empire come up? Well, I think that one of the the, the key things that's oops, um, the key things that's happened with the the Roman stuff is picked up by uh, Kinara, Chiara Bonacci and her team who looked at a, who did this massive study looking at something like 1.4 million Facebook um, contributions and comments and so on, and they found that there was a they were particularly looking for keywords that were related to the Roman Empire and to Britannia um, within Brexit related Facebook sites. And they found there was a real preponderance of people who were making quite misguided um, parallels between, for instance, the European Union and um, the Roman Empire. And we're looking at the kind of aspects of the, the Roman Empire about power and control and colonialism and all those kind of things. And then equating that with what the European Union was doing or looking at the collapse of the Roman Empire and thinking about um, how that might have parallels and you know, and those then those sort of things that are that seem to be, I think Chiara kind of argues that a lot of this is related to a sort of a, a school memories of the Roman Empire, and then kind of making these kind of slightly wrong-headed parallels, which are actually used to argue mostly against the European Union, but sometimes for it as well. And I think that then that then leads into all these other parallels. I mean, there was a um, last year there was a, during one particularly heated bit of um, Brexit politics when. Um, Theresa May was under pressure for one, you know, for something or other, which she always seems to be under pressure anyway. But there was something happening, and one of her former advisors um, kind of said in the papers, you know, Theresa May needs to have her Boudicca moment. She needs to be like Boudicca and actually stand up to this, you know, Roman Empire and fight back. Which, first of all, is is a, is a daft parallel, and secondly. Boudicca, Boudicca didn't do too well at the end of that that situation, which might be a, maybe actually reflecting what is going to happen in the next few months, and and so that these these kind of things sort of all emerge, and then you know, more recently I've been I've been trying to find other sort of wrong-headed Brexit parallels, and for instance, there's 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 several um, Roman Brexits apparently if you read the work of various different academics. There's one that I read about in the conversation, which suggested that the when um, the Roman Empire started to um, collapse and then the Roman power structure left the British Isles. That was supposedly the first Brexit because that was when Britain was essentially left adrift from the kind of the, the European political centre. But then this, but then the, a few a few weeks later in the conversation, there was another um, piece by another expert who was saying, well, actually, no, the first Roman Brexit happened in the third century AD when there was a 10-year power vacuum 
and suddenly Britain was left alone and ungoverned and then and so that was the, so there wasn't so the end of the Roman Empire wasn't even the first Brexit apparently so there's all these kind of it seems to be a very rich theme of metaphor and I think that there's obviously something about um, a colonization about a, a kind of a huge political unit um, and a distrust of it and I think that kind of just feeds into and sort of feeds off the whole paranoia that a lot of people seem to have about the motivations of the European of the European Union. The Roman Empire seems to be uh, taken on very much by people who consider themselves nationalists and let's not beat around the books. Usually white nationalists in particular uh, like to talk about multiculturalism ending the Roman Empire, which is, it's just, it's a, it's a meme. It's honestly, it's it's a talking point that you hear from the very extreme right. And it's it's worrying that it stretches so far across the political spectrum that it's not just the far-right arguments of, well, you know, Rome, you know, collapsed because of, you know, letting foreign people in, um, that, you know, you've got people who are not affiliated with that arguing about the first, second Brexits of Rome. I mean, it's so ridiculous, but it's also, it's so applicable. You know, people feel like, they know what the Roman Empire is, and therefore it's fit for everything. It's, you know, it's almost like Stonehenge is the blueprint for every stone monument in the existence of humanity. You know, this is my, this is the problem. It's they have um, they have a like an archetype, and that gets then put on everything, and that's 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 the really challenging thing, isn't it? It's the trying to disarm that archetype. Um, <sighs> How, how do you think we can separate out Brit I mean, do we deal with the Roman Empire and the misconceptions about that, or do we deal with the misconceptions about what Britain was? Um, I mean, when do, when would you say Britain as a modern entity kind of came into existence? Because it certainly wasn't during the Roman times. No, it was a. It was. I guess it was with the the Union in the sort of the early 18th century. So it's it's something that was a didn't really exist in the same way as Scotland didn't exist until you know in the last a thousand years. So it's it's quite easy to it's quite easy to imagine that that these are extended, um, really lengthy, long lived entities. And in fact, they're not really that like that at all. One one thing that really uh, interested me is um, the Tory MP Rory Stewart who's um, written uh, quite a few books with arguing his various positions. One of the things he's written about is this thing he's called Middleland, which he has argued is essentially a border zone between Scotland and England, which was um, existed throughout the Middle Ages. And he's used that in his writings to try and suggest that, in fact, there's, there's historically not been a border between Scotland and England since um, the Hadrian, since Hadrian's Wall, which of course wasn't actually at the, the, the current modern border. And that there's this long-term tradition of the, the, the people who lived in the borders being the same people whether they lived in the south or the or to the south or the north of the border. And so he's he's using again a kind of a, this historical argument to try and suggest as a precedent for there not being a border between Scotland and England. And again, that was arguing in favour of the, of the Union, and that's something he argued strongly with um, around the time of the, the referendum campaign. And one of the ways that that expressed itself was that, in quite a bizarre way, was that he, um, uh, around the time of the Scottish independence referendum, he organised for a, a, a prehistoric cairn replica to be constructed um, at Gretna. 
which is right on the, the border, uh, Scotland-England border, just on the Scottish side, in fact. Um, and this is a cairn which he argued was typical of the cairns that were found in um, Scotland and England uh, throughout prehistory. And therefore, by bringing people together from all over Britain, bringing stones to add to this cairn, they were actually um, recreating this kind of communal act that somehow dated back to prehistory. Despite the fact that this cairn was actually um, in all, to all intents and purposes, a clava cairn, which is a type of monument largely only found in Invernessure, and has got a very regional tradition um, for the Bronze Age. And when I visited the, that site a couple of years ago, it's taken on all sorts of um, additions with people painting the stones on the cairn and adding their own messages. And there's lots of Union flags all over it, lots of messages, lots of Red Hands of Ulster, lots of stuff that's really, you know, really strongly Unionist in character. And it's actually, it's, I find it quite a sinister place because it's got this, um, even though Rory Stewart um, is kind of, and he did, he did, he did kind of speak to me a bit about it after I, I blogged about this, and he did kind of suggest that this was that I was, I was reading too much into this. But I felt it was if there was a sinister attempt to try and suggest that somehow there was a unity that united that brought everyone together in Britain that stretched back into prehistory, based on this kind of slightly weird medieval and later post-medieval understanding he had of the the border country and his kind of misunderstanding of of the nature of Neolithic and Bronze Age cairns, and actually. When he was talking about this borderland, um, what he was actually talking about was um, posh people with estates who like to hunt foxes and ride about in the, the ridings. And, you know, I don't think he was actually talking about, you know, ordinary people. And so and to me, it seemed a very also a very kind of Tory centric landowner view as well of of the fact that there was, of course, there was no border because we owned all this land around here. Um, and, you know, nationalities don't matter because ultimately everyone everyone is our serfs and he's obviously not quite saying that literally but that was the kind of feeling i got and so that that i felt that that was also something that i felt was quite a quite troubling um way of appropriating prehistory and um, to try and make a modern political point that i felt was absolutely inappropriate yeah honestly as somebody who's grown up um surrounded by red hands of ulster i can tell you that they are definitely portray something um sinister um i I am actually, yeah, especially when especially when they crop up in Scotland. Well, know? I mean, they, you know, let's be honest, the Irish Sea is not that far. You know, between <laughs> there's some there's some places. You know, I'm in sure Greta's, Greta's, Greta's yeah. closer. Yeah, yeah. But it's so interesting that the the style is. It doesn't even matter. You know, it doesn't matter that the style is. Uh, distinctly Inverness, you know, way it, it that doesn't matter. No, no, it's all mm. it's all a it's all a it's so weird that at the same time that these people would make the argument about oh everybody's got such a different and distinct history as soon as it you know benefits them suddenly oh they can take history from everywhere i mean that's that's the whole idea that you know it's almost like when it's useful they can kind of copy and take from anywhere in the uk to represent them but at the same time you know they're not willing to accept what what that history actually means at all i just yeah that's that's actually that sounds to me like people don't understand the past um you know they understand that the past is meaningful they understand that certain people archaeologists historians create the past and they understand that there's this inherent authority in the past but they seem to be trying to you know take the quick route and create something out of the past to cement current things but doesn't that show that we're we put a lot of stock in the past 
I think I think people do. I think that's um, ultimately what one of the outcomes of this is the fact that um, people look to the past for lessons and uh, to somehow inform our, our current condition. And I think that in a sense that's a wise strategy because we, you know, it's it's a cliche, but we, we there's things that happened in the 20th century that we should never forget because we don't want those to ever be to repeated again. And that's fine. But at, at some point when you take it back further and further, it starts to become a bit ludicrous that this can have any um, any real specific applicability to our current political situation. And I think that what the past offers is a, is a, a form of legitimacy for arguments. Um, because if you can say, well, this this happened in the past, or this has always happened this way, um, then you can start to kind of have a bit of a, a grounding for your argument. And what really troubles me at times is that archaeologists um, are, are, and academics are, are, are often the people who are kind of peddling that line to an extent, often for their own kind of convenience. I mean, recently the English Heritage and the British Museum um, launched an exhibition uh, um, the Stonehenge Visitor Centre, which is, I can't quite remember the name of the exhibition now, but it's about connections between Britain and uh, and mainland Europe, going back to the Neolithic. So they've got objects that are like jade axes on display and that kind of thing. And, one of, and when the, the English Heritage press release for that um, uh, exhibition at first actually explicitly was saying things like, you know, well, Britain has always had a troubled relationship with Europe. You know, we can see that when we go back to the Neolithic and into prehistory when there's been periods of isolation and periods of connection, um, which is fine. You know, that's that you can that, that that's something which is a which which is which is borne out by the archaeological evidence. But then that's that's not relevant to to Brexit because. But then what you have is then the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph then report on the exhibition and they frame it as in this legitimizes our Brexit worldview because, you know, why are we why are we worried about Brexit? Because we've had lots of times in the past when we've been split off from Europe and the world hasn't ended, you know, so why should we worry about it now? Let's, you know, this exhibition is just is just suggesting that our relationship with Europe has constantly been one of um, kind of positivity and negativity. So what's the big deal? So you get you go from having an exhibition which is you know, I've, I've spoken to the exhibition um, curators and, they, they, you know, I'm, I'm fairly sure that they didn't really explicitly want to make a Brexit connection with this, um, with the, the exhibition. But English Heritage wanted to market it like that because they saw they because they saw it was a clickbait thing. They thought, right, OK, this has got a Brexit connection. The press are going to love this. And sure enough, they got a big splash in the papers about the exhibition. Um, but actually, what happened was that you started to get the right wing press using it to legitimise and uh, pro Brexit arguments, which is which which is legitimised by the fact that this is Eng this is not you know this is not just some um, fringe character who's a lone voice. This is English heritage. This is the British Museum, and so I think we have to be cautious as archaeologists and and as as as, as, as people in the heritage sector about falling for these kind of quite easy clickbaity headlines which can have unintended consequences further down the, the line. ADNA, or ancient DNA, is a challenging technique fraught with error, contamination, sample selection, and simply the passage of time. But for some reason, it is believed by some to be immutable, unquestionable, as accurate and as solid as modern forensic analysis. Indeed, the terrible conclusion to this is the alt-right answer to Cheddarman. In their paper, Lorna Richardson and Thomas Booth both explain that ancient DNA studies were misinterpreted and misused to justify and validate extensive racist political views. Even I tried to tackle Cheddarman, and I failed precisely 
the way the alt-right wanted me to. To unearth and debunk the most egregious claims, I had to first go through each premise and explain each individual problem. The very fact that Cheddar Man having dark skin receiving such a backlash should inform you what these people think having a dark complexion actually means. I think there's there's this loss of responsibility um, by media outlets because they have this idea that, well, no, I mean, like, as long as I'm not actually saying anything particularly ideologically, you know, blinkered, I'll be fine. But to me, you know, this this idea of clickbait, of attention, um, that, that's, that's one of the primary concerns here is you don't necessarily need clickbait to actually makes interesting stuff that that's the thing i mean we've talked about we've talked about now tv shows we've talked about english heritage i mean you mentioned the daily mail daily mail is i mean it's you know it's definitely on the in the bad books um there was something about the beaker people wasn't there oh well i mean that that's that's a classic example because that's a um, a major a very important um, study based on ancient dna that's suggested that um all of our well-worked theories over the last three or four decades are actually wrong and that the and that the beaker folk did exist after all and came from central europe and then colonized britain quite rapidly at the same time as there was a kind of an ailing late neolithic population who were all dying of the plague uh, and this is the sort of this is the narrative that's now being immersed in the last 18 months two years which for me as a as a someone who studied in neolithic all of my career is a, is a bit of a shock to the system but anyway the evidence the evidence is there and so there's there's a debate to be had and it's very interesting to see how that contradicts the material culture evidence but to then then those um, that study is presented and suddenly it becomes something which is which is entirely um politicized in um, a brexit context because then the daily mail runs with this idea that um that the, the, there was this european invasion that the, the the british indigenous neolithic was a was a failing kind of culture and there's all these kind of um issues to do with identity and to do with the kind of the, the diluting of the of the the indigenous uh, british genes where you go from all these neolithic people to having people who are 95 percent beaker people and five percent uh, neolithic people and there's all that kind of um, genetic mixing up going on and then you start to then you see so read the story's already been pitched in a really highly political way and then you start to go behind, below the comments line and you just get comments that are just flat out racist and are disturbing and sinister and dangerous um, things for people to believe um you know and you know saying you know if, if you could just you could replace one comment I read in the Daily Mail, someone said, you just replace beaker folk with Muslim, you know, and you, you think, what's going on here? This is crazy because that, what's, what's that got to do with anything? This is madness. And the thing, the thing is that, that that's that's based on, you know, a very a huge da big data project that's underpinned by loads and loads of academics and scholars and tons of evidence. Um, but did they actually think about how that would be received when they put out a press release, when they published this? You know, I think it was in science or something like that. So there was a bigger academic paper. Then there was a more of a a, po a kind of popular version. Did they actually think about how that would be received? Did they make any attempt to see that off of the past? Did they actually say, right, okay, by the way, there is nothing here which is going to which should give sucker to racists or to people who um, believe that immigration is a bad thing or are looking for sinister portents that happened in the past that are you know that are somehow um, against the, these poor indigenous um, um, British people. Um, 
I don't, I don't, I, no, no, that wasn't there. It was just, you know, isn't this amazing? Look at all this amazing data. Isn't this incredible? We're radically changing the way that everyone's thinking about this period in prehistory. Almost like in a, a kind of a naive dream world that this would not be picked up by racists and by um, morons for their own political ends. And then they can go into their own discussion fora um, and then they can start to say, look, this is evidence that backs up what we always thought. You know, these Europeans are a bad piece, are, are nasty. They are, they, you know, they want to kind of dilute our British way of life, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. You know, and okay, so the, the, the academics that publish that research might have said, you know, this has got nothing to do with a modern political condition or identity or nationality or anything, and that might well have been ignored, but at least they, they start that debate, and then when this stuff starts to happen, then people need to step in and they need to they need to join the debate and say this is wrong. This is you know this is a this is a really terrible misreading of the archaeological and the genetic evidence. But these discussions happen in isolation and happen freely in various different places, and there's no one that's offering a contrary opinion, and so it becomes one of those. Um, uh, bubbles um, that people get in where everyone just believes the same thing and then that's underpinned by data and it just you know so it's and I think that the, the, it's a it's a product of the, the way of course people consume news and the way that news is now publicized to people but inevitably it gets read by people within their own narrow agenda and as a, as a, as a discipline I think we've got a responsibility to try and somehow we, we can't stop it but we can be part of the debate we can be part of the discussion and we can actually be saying you know, this is wrong, this is a misreading of the evidence, um, this is a misunderstanding, this is not relevant to what you're saying it is. You've misunderstood the nature of genetic data because the public um, in general think about DNA in terms of CSI and in terms of police procedural um, dramas and the, the courts and they don't they don't really they don't really see DNA as something which has got very complicated links between identity and between genetics and all these other things that they, they just becomes like it just becomes like tied up with people's identity, and I think that there's a duty for academics to really explain these things better and to try and head off some of these misunderstandings before they become um, they, they become you know like memes and become tropes that are repeated across the the internet. And it's so important to if you have some sort of um, research to actually make uh, those responses because um, I I you know there are discussions debates people have that you know i remember hearing something recently where um somebody had tried to use research to make a certain point and in fact retort actually said look the actual researchers who did this study came out specifically to call out the misuse of this in this way because the data normally doesn't show what some of these people think it shows what it demonstrates in many ways is the the the, the 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 disconnection that exists and i think it's really important that archaeologists and his people interested in history or any sort of research that if you know your work is being misused make comments about it talk to people say this is not right and it because it gives anybody who's making an argument the point you know you know, the, there, there can't be this ambiguity of what do the authors mean when the author says explicitly it doesn't mean this. That is so important. I think that's definitely one of the things that if you're a researcher, you can do. But to the broader point, what do you think we could do? I think that um, there's a, there's certainly a place for um, in, in my Brexit hypothesis paper. I kind of called for archaeologists to become or more archaeologists become public intellectuals and actually to be 
visibly in, in involving themselves in some of these discussions and debates. So therefore, if something is, we see something in a in a discussion in social media um, or a forum or something that we are that we are involved in. I mean, not necessarily going looking for a fight, but if you're you know and you see something and you think, well, that's that's a really horrible misrepresentation of that piece of research by another archaeologist, then I think that we've got a duty to step in and say, you know, this is problematic. If you actually look at the original research, this is actually what it says, and if possible, maybe have a link to something as well. Um, and, and I mean, some people have said to me in the past, well, of course, that's just a, that's just futile because look at Mary Beards, look at all of the, the sticks she gets, she gets abuse, all the rest of it, and because she joins in these debates and discussions and then and then people don't like it and they get angry and they give her lots of personal abuse and she's a terrible time but she continues to do it because she understands the value of it because ultimately um even if a lot of the people you engage with a lot of them completely ignore what you say or they just think you know they don't take seriously what you're saying because they just think it's all part of a conspiracy or or you would say that wouldn't you that kind of attitude ultimately if you are putting that information into a timeline into a discussion that people might come across later on or other people might be lurking and watching without contributing some people will click on that link and go to the evidence and maybe say okay there is there is actually something different about this this is definitely definitely not what was portrayed by this argumentative line of discussion um, and so you've, you've kind of put a trail of breadcrumbs down that people can follow if they actually want to find out what, is, what does this research really mean what is it really relevant to what's it really all about so i think that at times of course it, it will get you um, abuse it will get you hassle from people and that's something that people have to decide whether they want to put up with or not and they shouldn't have to put up with it but that's the reality i think of them of social media in particular nowadays but there has to be more of that kind of thing going on because we've all seen things in social media that are not anything to do with our projects or our, our even our area necessarily of, of expertise but it's very clear that there's been this kind of really at best misunderstanding at worst a kind of a sinister um misuse of data that you that you can then step in and say well actually you can use the dreaded phrase i am an expert which may or may not get you very far these days you know but you know you've got a point of view and it's worth it's worth making i mean the, the example that i've used in uh, in the brexit hypothesis paper was uh, gordon barclay who's a, a sort of re a retired neolithic specialist who now mostly looks at um, the second world war uh, military remains um but he's he's quite very active on uh, social media, and you, and you can find him on Twitter continually trying to call out um, attempts to try and mythologize and invent incidents that happened, in particular in, um, related to Scottish history in the 20th century, which are often used by um, both by um, some people who are independent supporters, but also people who are um, who are maybe the, you know to the left of the Labour Party, who are making a range of different points, which are essentially anti-British, anti-Churchill, anti-England and using these kind of slightly mythical or um, augmented versions of incidents that happened in the past. And Gordon essentially is like, you know, he's out there, he, he kind of looks for keywords that comes up and then he, he steps into discussions and says, look, actually, if you look at um, this paper I've written, it kind of sets out the actual reality of what happened in that event rather than the kind of mythological reality, which is actually so mythological it's, it's turns up in Scottish textbooks for school children that are, that are wrong based on these uh, mythologies. And he gets all sorts of crap for it, but, he, but you know, he, he, he ultimately he puts the evidence there um, and he gets, a, he gets called all sorts of things by people who just think he's a unionist stooge um, or he's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a, kind, of, a kind of British propagandist. But ultimately, he's just, he's just trying to set the record straight and trying to say, you know, these are actually the facts, you know, and then people can either take it or leave it. But, you know, he, he, he intervenes and he tries to 
present in a, a level-headed way what the evidence actually is. And I think that, that that's something we could learn from. I think we have to do a bit more of that in the discipline. It's not for everyone, and not everyone is going to want to do that. But I think we have to take a bit more of a, um, a broader responsibility and be engaged um, with society and be engaged with the political discourse, because ultimately archaeology is a, is a political subject. Um, it's not apolitical. It's not objective. It's a subjective thing. And I think we have to, we have to actually realize that we have we can play a role in these political discussions um, and that we can actually set the record straight and that that's a valuable uh, contribution where possible is kind of civilized discussion and debate and it's not about descending to to abuse and you know you don't have you don't have to agree with everything that, that mary beard says but you know you, you also don't have to abuse her because you don't agree with her opinion um, and i think that that's that's ultimately the kind of Ultimately, that's that, that's important that we have to be interventionist, but we have to be interventionist in that, as you say, a kind of level-headed um, way that befits our, our, our expertise, you know, in a sense. And, and actually, expertise is something which is much derided in this day and age um, for some reason. But ultimately, we do have a body of expertise which is important and which a lot of people actually really do respect which is a double-edged sword because it also means that if someone who's an expert says something that's then misinterpreted, then that's used to legitimize because an expert said it. So there's, so again, it's a bit of being careful about how we express things. Have you received uh, any sort of like backlash to anything you've written or done um, from anybody? Not really. I think <laughs> I sometimes wonder. I must be. I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> no, I tend to no. Yeah. No, I tend to. I mean, I've, I've, there's a few times where I've, I've said I've, I've said a few things, and I thought, well, this is going to get me a bit of um, stick, and it hasn't ever really happened. The only I've had a few run-ins with people about the Stonehenge Tunnel uh, because um, I, I get quite annoyed about some of the stuff that's trotted out about how you know the the, the, the creation of the tunnel is going to destroy all of this stuff, and in fact, what's going to happen is it's going to be professionally and carefully excavated and that's a different argument as to whether that should happen or not but it's not a destruction um and and yet there's this kind of there's a constant kind of trope that goes on about you know the world heritage site is going to be destroyed and um and and then it, so I've, I've, there's a few times i've stepped in and said look that's not how it's going to happen because if the stonehenge tunnel happens it means we'll know a lot more about stonehenge than, um, in a few years than we do now and so is that such a bad thing and so I've had a few people, um, like Tom Holland, who's been, you know, quite negative towards things I've said, but, you know, he's quite an abrasive character anyway. So but apart from that, I haven't managed to annoy anyone really enough for them to be rude to me um, so far. Not yet. Uh, not but, this, this, you know, I'll keep trying. Yeah, yeah, well, this this episode will be released and then, you know, the hordes will come. No, don't worry. Don't That's worry. it. I'll, I'll be in trouble. You'll yeah. be ready. You'll be ready to face it. No, I, I think this is these contentious issues are often jumped on, I think. I think especially Stonehenge I, I really you know what like screw Stonehenge I, I don't care you know I don't I don't care about Stonehenge I really think it's the most ridiculous reductive kind of demonstration of like this is the problem I have with people who idolize one history over another I just I don't mm. why do we care about Stonehenge like it's a bit it's a bunch of rocks um, <laughs> I know that's not really flippant but like I've ha I, I've honestly like because I know that the attention that Stonehenge gets means attention is drawn away from other places mm. that are yes, exactly. almost more interesting because we haven't heard about them, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, that's it. there's so many great stories out there that are not really told because they don't because they get lost amongst the, the kind of rush towards Stonehenge, which, let's face it, was largely rebuilt in the late 19th, early 20th century with concrete, you know? And so it's, a, you know, this 
there's all sorts of there's all sorts of kind of crazy authenticity arguments about it which just don't make any sense so yeah i mean i, th I think that it, it has a, a very disproportionate effect on a whole range of things within british archaeology and i think it's, it's i think it's an unhealthy obsession with the brexit deadline looming it is obvious that this will be a historic moment for the country already channel 4 has made a drama brexit an uncivil war to chronicle the way in which the Leave and Remain campaigns behaved. I wonder how future generations will see these attempts of rationalisation. What kind of history will be popular in post-Brexit Britain? Will we seek to emphasise our isles once again as champions of industry? Will we see Britain as a constant, strong and sovereign nation? Will we remind ourselves that isolation was not in our history? that Britain's influence had reached all corners of the globe. However you voted on the 23rd of June 2016, please take a moment to consider the ideas you told yourself. Perhaps that Britain would be better off outside the EU, or that the UK itself would crumble outside the common market. And I want you to think about that path. What narratives did you hear? And how was the modern myth of Brexit created. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.archpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.archpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.archpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and having a wee chat with us. Um, uh, how do we find you on the internet? Um, I'm a, you can um on Twitter I'm a, at Urban Prehisto, um which is a sort of spins off from my uh, blog and my kind of alter ego online which is the Urban Prehistorian and if you Google Urban Prehistorian you should find my blog fairly easily and then from that you can follow the the weird and wonderful adventures I have with prehistoric sites in urban places. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.